Okay. <clears throat> Hello and welcome to today's episode of Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki Rousseau, founder and CEO of Exaptic, a robotics company based in Melbourne. Today, my guest is Dikai Lu. Dikai is a distinguished professor in mechanical and mechatronic engineering and director of the Robotics Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney, Australia. Dikai has a list of achievements and merit awards so long that I'm not going to take time reading them to you now because it will probably take about 10 minutes. So Dikai, welcome and thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. So as director of the Robotics Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney, you have a huge job. How long have you held this position and what does a typical day look like for you? Uh, <clears throat> I've been in such position about seven years. Uh, it's quite an easy job, I found. Uh, it's not that difficult uh, because everyone in the center or in the institute are working very hard. And what I need to do is basically to set up the vision and coordinate the, uh, to help people to achieve the center's vision and the individual's um, uh, goals. So it's not that difficult. Oh, look, I think you're downplaying how, um, I think it's because you're such an accomplished human being that it's maybe not that difficult for you, but congratulations nonetheless. So how many people, staff members and students um, are connected to the center? Um, if we count uh, PhD students as well, because PhD students are the main uh, 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 researchers in the center. So we have about 90 people, nine zero, 90 people, yes. That's, that's a fair amount of people to herd in a certain direction. And um, as you say, they're all very motivated. So it makes your job slightly easier. Yes, yeah. So I'd like to focus on a few of your projects and particular starting with Sandy and Rosie, who are two very special robots that you and your team designed. These two robots work tirelessly on one of Australia's most well-known and popular landmarks, which is, of course, the Sydney Harbour Bridge. If you're wondering how the bridge stays looking so good with no rust and fresh paint, this is in part thanks to Dikai and his team. Tell us about these robots and, and the, how the project started and everything that it involved. This project started in, 20, uh, in 2006. Uh, we were approached by uh, the Roads and the Maritime Services of New South Wales, who, is, who was in charge of managing the uh, Sydney Harbour Bridge. And they approached us by saying, we have this problem more related to the OHS. Uh, can you come up with the robots to help people? That is where we started. And we spent six, six years <clears throat> to do this project with a lot of support from the uh, Australian Research Council, uh, RMS of New South Wales and the U UTS. Uh, then by the end, we made, uh, we manufactured two such robots and uh, deployed in the St. Harbour Bridge, uh, which was uh, welcomed uh, a lot. So the bridge is about 81, 82 years now from, from what I read about it. So the robots, um, obviously there's a lot of rust and dirt that gets on the bridge. So are they working basically 24 hours a day or how, how's the, um, you know, the deployment of the robots? 
the robots are deployed based on the schedule of uh, in the maintenance of the St. Harbor Bridge. Um, it is not used 24 hours a day. It is not the case uh, because uh, by operating these robots, uh, we still need some operators around to monitor the operation of the robots. Uh, so basically, um, people and the robots are working together. But the important di uh, difference is people work outside of, out, outside of the blasting or the maintenance site uh, in a much better working condition. The robot is inside to do the difficult job. In, in this particular case, you start the blasting. Which is, of course, quite a dangerous job anyway because of the high pressure and, um, you know, just the, the environmental toxins that people are breathing in. That's right, yes. It's a very difficult environment for people to work out. So is Rosie and, and um, Sandy, these type of robots, are they deployed in other parts of the world that you've had <clears throat> clients using this technology? Uh, yes. <clears throat> this technology has been commercialized by a company called Cyber Autonomous Solutions in Sydney. They have sold some of the sold some robots to the um, to uh, uh, to the world in the U.S., in France, in Japan uh, for um, cleaning and maintenance of various structures. All right, you know, it's amazing when you think of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. I lived in Sydney um, for a few years and I'd go over this bridge and I'd go, how do they do the maintenance of this, keeping it looking so fantastic? And um, when I spoke to Nathan Kirchner, who he was going on about this technology and you, of course, and um, I think it's absolutely amazing what you've achieved doing it here. And I suppose the, the main thing is the health and safety of, of people working on this bridge. That's right, yes. <clears throat> Nathan was a big contributor to the uh, Sand and the Rose uh, robotic technology. He was a PhD student who works on this, this project. Uh, he was a student there. Oh, excellent. He didn't tell me that, but now I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, it's amazing how designers and robot builders look to nature for ideas and copy movement. Um, your next robot, Croc, is one such example of a robot used for confined space inspection and condition assessment. This robot was designed to cater to health and safety requirements again, which precluded inspectors working at certain heights. Tell us more about this project. After Sandy and Rosie were developed, um, then <clears throat> we were discussed about the other applications in the Harbour Bridge. Uh, one of the applications was the the arches in the in the Sydney Harbour Bridge, uh, which is a confined space uh, with box scolders. So in total, it's about 7.2 kilometers long in terms of the arches. And because the inside is uh, is a confined space, people are not allowed to to cleaning painting inside the arches due to safety concern. So that is where we got the, um, the project uh, to develop a, an intelligent robot, which, one, which can get into the confined space, move around, localize itself, go through partition plates, and also go through a small manholes. Um, so that is where we started. And in terms of the uh, design of the robot, very important 
comparing to the work in the laboratory is that this robot has to work in real environment. In this particular case, which is the Sydney Harbor Bridge, um, this caused huge challenges to us. So by the, after looking at various uh, uh, mechanisms and we found this kind of um, uh, this kind of uh, caterpillar kind of structure is, is the best one for the specific applications in the Harbor Bridge. So Dika, I watched the video that you sent me and um, I'll put all these notes for the audience to see exactly all the, the robots we're talking about. Um, this, this crop looks just like a caterpillar. So it, it emulates the movement of going forward, constricting. Um, I noticed that your crop can actually flip backwards, like do sort of a bit of a somersault in a way as well. Ah, uh, yes, yes. And how many teams or people were involved in the development and design of this robot? We spent five years, roughly about five years, to, to do this project. And from the first day to the last day, many, many people uh, were involved um, from, different, from, from different aspects. Uh, the, the, the team, as the main contribution of the team, probably is about eight people, including academics, postdocs, research engineers, and PhD students. But besides those eight people, and we had many under, undergraduate students involved in this project as well. They did their final year project or what we called Catchstone project. You know, so in a way, I mean, um, could you give us a ballpark figure about how much this would cost to, to build this robot? Like if you took in the five years and you did a rough estimation, what would that be? Uh, you mean including the salary of the people involved? Yes. Okay, this is a big number. I did, <laughs> <laughs> I, I did I didn't do the calculation before, but if I if if you like to have a book just figure here, um, I guess probably four million, four million dollars. You see, so this really just highlights where universities and research institutions like yours come into play that you could do this because A, it's a field of study for students that they can come and get their qualifications. But B, if you know, if you had a startup or a robotic company doing this, you know, where, who could carry the sort of financial load? Yeah, I think the main focus of this project is really we solve a lot of uh, research uh, uh, problems or answer a lot of research questions. Then by answering these research questions, um, then we develop methodologies that can be used to build such robot. Otherwise, it will be very di difficult to build a robot like this. So the main focus of the research here is really try to develop the enabling methodologies here. So that, that was the main focus. In terms of the practical engineering work to develop the hardware and the control of this robot, this part of the job is mainly done by research engineers and by, um, by some uh, undergraduate students. So has the crop also been commercialized? Is someone, um, their company representing this now in Australia? Not at the moment. Uh, the, this crack is in the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Um, 
they can use it for the inspection of the inside of the arches. Um, we have two patents. One is the US patent and one is Australia Australian patent. Um, but so far we have not found an uh, uh, an industry partner who is going to commercialize this technology. Well, we'll put it out there to anyone listening to contact you if they think they've got uh, bandwidth to do this for you, because it's certainly an amazing little robot. Um, the video was really interesting watching it. So, no, no, yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, we will. Deca, we're going to put all your contact details out there for them to contact you. So. <laughs> okay, your that's great. Your team also developed an intelligent robot for patient handling known as the smart hoist. So um, I'm actually looking at a picture of it as I'm speaking to you. And of course, with um, all sorts of applications today, the first and foremost that comes to mind is, um, you know, as, as the human species gets bigger and bigger, um, you know, because we're just getting bigger and it's very heavy to lift people. Tell us how this, this robot developed. The, the basic idea of this robot is trying to help nurses or caregivers to improve their working condition. Um, uh, what happened was uh, most of the nurses, about 50% of nurses or caregivers, uh, get the lower back injury by using mechanical hoist to move patients from bed to wheelchair or from wheelchair to other places. So because this kind of lower back injury, that is a big OHS issue for nurses and the caregivers. So that was the, the driver uh, helped us to develop the smart hoist. And this smart hoist make it much easier to, to move patients. Um, what the nurses need to do is just use the hand to touch the uh, smart hoist and then the smart hoist can figure out where and how the nurse, how a nurse wants to move. Uh, then the, the, the hoist will do the work. Basically, this allows the uh, nurses to work together with this hoist uh, to do a job collaboratively. And at the same time, significantly reduce the workload of the nurses or caregivers. So that was the main uh, about this hoist. So what's the maximum um, payload kilos that it can pick up? I guess it's about 130 kilos. Oh, that's a significant amount. Yes, yes. Yeah, and if you're imagining a nurse or someone a caregiving have a, having to lift that amount of weight, like there's no ways one, even two people could possibly do that. That's right, yes. Even two people, even for two people, it is still a hard job. Yeah, obviously, and all the back injuries that you've mentioned and other injuries that people are getting. So where is this used? Is it in hospitals, in aged care centres at the moment in Australia? It was extensively tested in the nursing home. You uh, wouldn't go for for about a year. Then since then, we've been trying to find the industry companies to commercialize this technology. So, what does it involve? You've you mentioned this twice now. What does it involve getting an industry partner? What What do you look at? What sort of criteria do you look at for partners to come in with you? <clears throat> uh, industry partner who are interested. 
uh, industry partners who are interested to uh, transforming uh, uh, technologies from research labs to um, to uh, industry. So those are the partners we like we like to have uh, because they are going to uh, bring this technology to industry and to to the end users. Okay, so I'm assuming that that would um, involve a certain amount of um, investment from their part. Uh, one thing is about investment. Second thing is about um, it's about the capability. Uh, for example, we can have the investor, then we can find a manufacturing company, and <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, quite, it's, it's quite an involved story. Uh, it is, it is. And such kind of translation of technology uh, requires bigger effort. So in terms of this sort of uh, development and, and ingenuity that you're doing here, do you know what the other universities are doing in this space as well? Each research team or uh, each uh, research, uh, oh, sorry, each research team in the university, they have their main focus. Um, so what we are doing here and the UTS, uh, the focus we have is different from the focuses other research centers have in Australia. So do the, the universities talk to each other so that you're not doing any overlapping or is it just sort of you automatically know what everyone's doing just because you're just chatting on an informal basis? Uh, we, yeah, we normally try to uh, differentiate uh, uh, from each other uh, in terms of the research topics and they don't do the same thing uh, which other universities or other research groups are doing. Um, but because we, we attend the conferences every every year and we know who is doing what. Okay. So, yeah. And and how how did COVID affect your team, Dikai, last year? Like, um, how did you manage all of this? Um, yeah, it's a lot of work to manage the team to achieve to achieve the expected outcomes. Um, from our industry partners. It's a, it's, it's a job requires consistent effort for many years. So it's not easy. Yeah, I'm sure. So the last, the last robot we're gonna chat about is your spur. So it's submersible pile inspection robot. And again, I watched the video that you sent me. It's really interesting. Basically like a robot that um, hooks onto uh, a structure underwater and then high pressures it. So tell us about this robot. <clears throat> okay. Um, this robot, at the beginning, the main reason we developed such a robot is that uh, in the shallow water environment, not in the deep water, in the shallow water environment, like the, we have a lot different types of uh, infrastructures, like bridge piles, wolf piles, um, oil and gas pipes and the many other different structures. Those kind of structures are maintained manually by divers and they go to, they dive into the water and do some inspecting, do some in clean, uh, cleaning and they do inspecting and then just, this is a very difficult job for divers. And also because diver is difficult for divers then the inspection and the maintenance are kind of behind the schedule or not complete. 
for example, if they do the inspection, uh, they just look at a very small part of a bridge, bridge, a bridge pile. So then we thought it's a good idea to have a robot which can work many hours every day and they do a complete cleaning of all pile and then do the inspection thoroughly. So this was the main um, uh, purpose uh, of this robot. Then later on, after that, we developed an autonomous robot which has enough intelligence uh, to perform uh, cleaning and inspection operations in underwater environment, which is about the uh, spire. Listen, it's amazing. I was watching it and um, I mean, the guy, just this robot just going and pressure cleaning all the algae and the, the material it, that's stuck to it so that people can in, actually inspect the assets and see whether they're still stable, um, probably in a fraction of a time that a diver could do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. With, this, with the support of this robot, then the job becomes much easier. So in terms of um, like how long did this take you and was it like, were you doing one robot at a time or is it like you working on a few projects at a time? Uh, we have different teams uh, for you for different projects. And at the other time, normally we have two or three projects running and the uh, empower there. And how long did this robot take to design and get it functioning to your standards? Um, it depends. Uh, as I mentioned, the Sandy and the Rosie, we, we spent about seven, six, years, uh, six years to develop these two robots. And after we get more experience and the team is built up, then developing up, the following robots will be reasonably, um, uh, it does not require that much time. Um, so, for example, for the uh, underwater robot, we spent about uh, four and a half years to five years uh, uh, to do the research and the develop the robot. So once you've got the final product, um, say let's use Sandy and Rosie as an example, have you had to go back and tweak anything on the robots or um, was your final design, you've just left it as such? Uh, normally, what came up came out of the research teams or research centers like UTS. In UTS, uh, we don't we normally don't call them products. We just call them prototypes. Okay. For example, Sandy and Rosie, we call the call their them prototypes. And the rock, the crack, and the spear, we call them prototypes as well, because there is a there is a big gap between prototypes and the products. So that is why we like to have industry partners who be, to be involved to bring the technology from prototypes to products. Okay, and they can commercialize it then. Okay, yes, yes. All right, okay. And what are you working on at the moment, you and your teams? Uh, we have two or three projects running at the moment, in parallel at the moment. And one of the projects is that we are developing intelligent robots for um, maintenance of power transmission towers, uh, which you can see everywhere. Um, the power transmission towers or the telecommunication uh, towers, which is big. Of right? course, huge and very dangerous work. 
Uh, that's why, yes. Uh, it's very dangerous, not because of working in, on high, in hives, but also because, the, because of the voltages and the, the active, uh, what is that called? Active, active, the power, the power line is still active. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's so, all done touch it. <laughs> that's why, yes. <laughs> People have to keep a big distance, I mean, a, a distance from the lines. So it's very difficult. And uh, we've been doing this research for three years now. And this, this research is in collaboration with TEPCO, Tokyo Electric Power Company in Japan. So they came to Australia and find us. Uh, and that's where we start to work together. So this is one of the projects we're doing right now. And Japan is, of course, like a, a leader in robotics in terms of um, their voice. They would also be using that in their aged care. And um, they've got paper. They 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 um, embrace and, and use robots a lot. Yes, Japan has been traditionally very, very strong in robotics research and applications. Um, so we are uh, proud of getting this project from Tepco, one of the biggest companies in Japan. Um, I guess the main reason we, we got chance to do this project in collaboration with TEPCO is uh, our expertise and experience in developing robots for infrastructures like Sandy Rosie, Croc, and Spear. Uh, so we have demonstrated our capability and convinced them. I guess that, prob that is probably the main reason. So Dekai, if you've got a team of students sort of coming and going, do you have a core team of researchers that actually stay at the Robotics Institute to sort of keep the, your, your IP and all your knowledge there? Uh, yes, we have, because uh, the IP is mainly about the research aspect. Uh, in the, um, the, we have relatively stable teams here. So then the knowledge can be transferred from project to project, and the, the experience really helps a lot. So how far is your project now with um, the Japanese partner? Um, how, how far is it before you've actually got a prototype? About one and a half years. Okay, so not, so on average, you're looking about four to six years for any, for any development. That, yeah, that is our experience. Uh, it does require uh, four to six years to develop, to do the research and develop the, techn the, techn the methodologies and then develop the, um, the, real, the prototype. Uh, you may have seen many different, different types of prototypes. Uh, some of the prototypes can only demonstrate the concept in the light, very, very, very well designed or controlled environment. But for all the projects we are doing uh, here, we have to make sure the robot will be able to operate in real environment. Yeah, that's so, a, yeah, that's a different thing that it's in your lab and you're playing with it as opposed to in reality when it's up a power line do, doing um, you know acid inspection. That's right. Yes. So there's a big difference from a live demo to a real application demo. Uh, one example here is about the climbing robot, Croc. And we, we tested a lot in the lab. It works very well. And by the end, 
when we put this robot into the harbor bridge, then we found uh, many problems. And that, is why, that was why the climbing robot was tested in the harbor bridge. We went to the harbor bridge to test the crack robot probably more than 50 times in, in, the, in the project period. You can imagine 50 times go to the harbor bridge to test the robot. That is a very big effort. That, that shows the difference between the live demo and the demo in real environment. Dekar, I think anyone that works with robots realizes that, um, you know, when you see a YouTube video of something working, you actually have to get it in your office or in the environment and do a lot of, you know, to actually make sure it does work. It reminds me a little bit of, I think, CES 2019 when LEG was going to, I think it was LEG unveiled this robot doing something and something went horribly wrong. It was an absolute disaster. Yeah, there's a big difference between the live demo and the demo in the real environment. Yeah, it's, <laughs> you have to make sure it's working and doing what you said it's going to be doing. That's right. Yes, that's right. Yes. yes. So just thinking about robots and the application and, you know, when you talk about robotics, do you have people telling you, you know, what do you say to them when they say robots are going to take our jobs and they're fearful of losing jobs? What, what's your take on that? <clears throat> I fully understand why people have such feeling. Uh, this is the nature. Uh, uh, but the okay, different robot automation is all about is is, is about to um, have less number of workers in, for that particular task. Um, the robots we developed here uh, is really try to help people uh, to help their working conditions, to help their OHS. Um, so this. This is the main focus of our research. Like the uh, blasting robot really try to get people outside of the blasting chamber and the robot do it and people stay outside to, um, to monitor the operation of the robot. Like the climbing robot, because people are not allowed to get into the confined, small confined space. So the, because there's no such solution, that's why the robot can help to do the job. And in this particular case, the people will stay outside of the confined space to monitor and at the same time uh, in, um, interact with the robot. So um, because all the robots we developed are really to help people and the people are still working together with this robot. So um, I cannot imagine any job loss uh, by using such kind of robots we developed. And over the years, do you think there's um, more tolerance and acceptance of robotics in Australia, particularly? You know, we, we don't fare very well on a world scale in terms of our adoption rate. I think we, something like um, out of 38 countries, we're 35th on the list in terms of robotic adoption. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Sorry, I, I didn't get your question clearly. Sorry. Um, just in terms of the adoption rate of um, Australians and robotics adoption rate here in our country, um, I, I think we're lagging to the rest of the world. Okay, uh, this probably because of different uh, various reasons. Um, because robots have different types of uh, uh, different types. Uh, for example, industry robot for automation in manufacturing environment or field robots like what we developed working outside of the environment, uh, outside 
uh, like in Harbor Bridge, and the service robots working together with people in family uh, and home or just in workplaces. So um, in terms of the adaptation of robots, I guess right now in the whole world is mainly, mainly related to the industry robots, uh, automating jobs in manufacturing environment. But Australia, uh, traditional manufacturing is not as strong as many other countries. That's why probably the, uh, the, uh, the number of the robots in Australia is not as many as uh, many other countries, I guess. Yeah. Dikai, um, do you have children and are, and are they interested in robotics? Uh, I have one daughter, but she's not interested in robotics. <laughs> <laughs> what, what does she think of your work? <laughs> she, she likes it. She likes it very much, but she said she, she likes to do something she's interested in. Yeah, and it's not robots. <laughs> not, not robots, that's right. Yes, yes. In, in terms of the students coming through your, um, your institute, like male versus female, what are, what's your ratio at the moment? Um... We've been trying very hard to have more female students to working together with us and to research um, in robotics. Um, we're not that very successful, um, mainly because in engineering, um, we don't have many female undergraduate students, right? Uh, I think that is the main um, reason uh, we don't have many female PhD students working together with us. You know, it's an interesting subject and I've spoken to a lot of people about this and um, I, I spoke to a lady that's uh, now introducing a program for engineering students that later in life, so women, um, that potentially have engineering degrees and they, they went off and had children and they're wanting to go back to work. And she's sort of got a returnship that she calls it. That's a program that she contacts companies to take on women that are older, you know, later in life to, to start their careers again with the understanding that the company would do a bit of mentoring to help the woman, you know, get back up to scratch. Because if you haven't been working for 10 years in a corporate or, um, engineering role obviously you you need to brush up your skills a little bit um, and she was actually suggesting that what universities or there should be some sort of longitudinal study as to why what happens to the women that actually graduate as engineers so at the moment we've got a 36 percent um stat of, of um, those 36 percent of women are actually um, engineering graduates at that's the stats at the moment. So what happens to them? Where do they go? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, I guess many of the engineering, many of the famous students graduated from engineering, I guess they got a job outside uh, in the industry, I guess. Uh, many, that, that's probably most of the graduates uh, went. Um, uh, but doing PhD research is a very difficult job. Um, probably uh, many of them are not, are not ready to, or uh, are not ready to do research in robotics. Uh, it's a big, uh, it's difficult job. And from our point of view, 
we really, really want to have more famous students working uh, together with us uh, doing uh, robotics research. We have been trying very hard to recruit more female um, uh, students. Yeah, listen, I think it's a tough job, Dika, and I wish you the best of luck with it. I, I can't, um, as I said, I've spoken to many people and we, there just doesn't seem to be an answer for this, uh, you know, the, the lack of women in this field. So um, I, I couldn't hazard a guess, you know, as I said, Ruth and her, her team looking at where the women go and once they've actually entered the industry, they've worked as an engineer for a few years and then they fall off for whatever reason. It will be very interesting if someone actually does the study and there are actually some results and stats to publish around it. Well, that would be good. Yes, that would be. But that's not going to be your job because you've got enough work in your institute. <laughs> I think you're very, very busy there and you're doing absolutely amazing work. So, Dick, I thank you very much for your time. So in closing, where can people reach you if they want to, to talk to you about any of the work or they just want to know more information? Um, probably send me an email, which is a more direct way. And the, um, in the center's website, we have a list of the projects. And the people can, can look at the website of our center and they find the projects. And the, uh, there are some details under each of the projects uh, listed there. Listen, that's absolutely fantastic. Dika, I'll actually put your email in the show notes as well, as well as all the videos that you sent me to have a look at. Thank you so much for your time. I'm, I'm absolutely just um, in awe of the work you do. And I'm, I'm so happy to speak to you knowing that you and your team designed a robot that's keeping the, the Sydney Harbour Bridge clean. I think that's phenomenal. Yeah, we like to see our technologies uh, being used by as many uh, people as possible. So that is the, um, we are expecting and that is what we are working on as well. So thank you, you very much. It's very, very, very nice to talk to you and my great pleasure. Thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, you too. And also I need to send you the photos. You, request, you, you suggest me to send you some photos with robots. That would be absolutely wonderful. I'm, I'm actually looking at a few that you've sent me here on the screen. So I'll certainly use those, but if you could send me more, that would be absolutely wonderful. Okay, I will do. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, and to my listeners, thank you very much for joining me today and um, join me again in two weeks' time. <laughs>